So we're, we're in this series of looking, going through the Decalogue, uh, the, the 10 words, the, what, what we oftentimes call the 10 commandments, the, this, um, this covenant that Israel entered into with Yahweh God at, at the mountain of Sinai after he delivered them from slavery in Egypt and he frees them and he says, we're in a relationship now. And now that we're in relationship, I want to remove the chaos from your life. So you don't have to do this in order to be in a relationship. Remember, we've been saying that a lot. We're already in a relationship. I've already saved you. I've redeemed you. You're my people. But you've got a lot of chaos in your life. And so I'm going to give you these 10 words. And these 10 words are going to be, if, if, if this is the way in which you step into it, and remember, we've been saying that when we do these things, we're actually imaging God, right? He's inviting us to image him. He says, this is how I am. I'm truthful, so I want you to, to live in truth. I rested, so I want you to rest. I so he's, he's inviting us to image him. And the promise is, as you do that, you will find the normal chaos of your life when you just kind of live on your own. You'll find that falling aside because you're walking in the way. You're walking in the truth. You're walking in the life. And so each week we've been kind of exploring a different one of these. And tonight we're getting to the one on you shall not steal. It's about theft. For those of you who, who are parents of middle schoolers, I think it's on the back of your program. Uh, pastor Justin Matthews, our middle school pastor, He's been sending me questions each week. They're tracking along with the series in middle school. Sometimes they're like a week off. Sometimes they're with us, so it's a little off each time. But um, he's been adding some questions. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm driving home in the car with my kids, um, I can, you know, like, how was church night? Fine, right? Okay. <laughs> um, so if any of these questions are helpful for you to just say, hey, so I heard you talked about this tonight. These are maybe some questions that, that you can engage with if you're interested. <clears throat> um, we also said week one, this reality that Western law, uh, Western jurisprudence has been highly influenced by the existence of some of the things we find in the Decalogue, and we'll see some of that tonight. Um, we're going to look at not just the commandments, you know, the Ten Commandments, but we're going to look at these, um, what they call case law, stuff that comes, because Ten Commandments come in chapter 20, and then starting in chapter 21, 22, it's all of these illustrations of what life might look like if you put these 10 things into practice. Does that make sense? So the first 10, we said this, I think, week one, the first 10 are what's called apodictic laws. It's just don't. <laughs> don't do this, right? Or do, do do this. What comes after is what's called casuistic laws that we use in our language. And that's like, if you do break that law, then this. It's if-then laws. If this happens, this is what will result. Does that make sense? <clears throat> so we're going to start with this absolute prohibition. Don't steal. And then we're going to look at how did Israel think about that in chapter 21. And that's in your bulletin on the right-hand side. And I apologize. The, you know what I hate? Like is just, it's a pet peeve, <clears throat> is when texts on a page are like all different fonts. That's what this is, right? And it's my fault. And I hate it. It drives me crazy. So it's like different fonts, different sizes. It just bugs me. So sorry about that. It's all weird font on there anyway. 
And so we're going to be looking at that. Um, so let's start with this, this commandment here. Of all the commandments, it's the shortest. It's the most open-ended. It's just to, you know, adultery is to married people. It's not to single people. The fifth commandment about parents, it's, it's to children. Um, the, these laws are specific. This one's really wide, really wide open, and it's really short. And there's almost no explanation given to it. Like, what does that mean? And there's probably not a lot of explanation given because not a lot of explanation is it's needed in this sense. So it's, it's simply saying we cannot take anything that belongs to another person. So in your outline, we're going to walk through, take some of this stuff apart, kind of see what's going on here and see what kind of observations we can make. The first thing, and you'll see this on the inside of your bulletin on the left-hand page, there are two different kinds of theft that are in mind here that gets talked about later. Um, Many of the commandments that we have carry with it extreme punishment like capital punishment. Punishment is death, right? Um, If you strike a person and they die, punishment is death. If you you strike your parents, right? Uh, You break the the fourth commandment of the Sabbath. It's it's death penalty. This one's different. Um, It's not death penalty except one particular kind of theft, but the rest of them, it's not that way. This eighth commandment is handled very differently. So Exodus 21, uh, the verses we have, it's going to deal entirely with property. And it's all about um, when something is taken, misused from you, there's economic restitution that is made within the community here. The one case in which the death penalty does happen is um, the act of stealing an imager, stealing a person, what we might think of as kidnapping. So listen to Exodus 21, verse 16. Whoever steals a person, whether that person has been sold or still in their possession. So you find the the kidnapper, oh, I've sold them. (laughs) Or, oh, I've still got them right here, I'll return them shall be put to death. Deuteronomy 24, seven reiterates it. It says, if someone is caught stealing another Israelite, enslaving or selling the Israelite, then that thief shall die. So what's being protected here with the eighth commandment? What's being protected is the freedom, the, the, the protection of the individual um, th- that, that the theft of the person is taking a person and converting them to a means of production. Does that make sense? It's for economic reasons. It's taking a person and converting them into just a means. Um, Immanuel Kant was a famous philosopher. He, he, he tried to come up with an ethics that was detached from religion so it could be respectable. He himself was a religious person. He was influenced by scripture, but he wanted to come up with an ethic that was not what well, the Bible tells me so. So he, he, he tried to come up with these like maxims, these rules for life. And one of his maxims was, okay, here's, here's a maxim. Always act in such a way that you treat a person not just as a means, but at the same time as an end. Does that make sense? We know the difference between a means and an end. A means is it doesn't matter what means you use as long as you get to the end you want. And he said, no, 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 when you're dealing with people, again, he's informed from scripture, this is a scripture, when you're dealing with people, 
People are image bearers of God. They are an end in and of themselves. So when I treat a person as merely as a means, I am breaking the 10th commandment. I am use, I'm converting them to simply what someone can make for me. I think it was uh, <clears throat> Ford, the guy who made you know the cars, Henry Ford. And he said, why is it that when all I want is a pair of hands, I get a whole person? Any employers ever feel that way? All I want is a pair of hands, is what Henry Ford, just make the car, right? But he's like, but I get a whole person. I have to deal with their issues and their personal life and their stuff. And he was wrestling with this idea here. I want to treat people as a means, just get the job done. But he realized, I can't do that. Anytime we're dealing with people, these are image bearers of God, and we treat them as an end in and of <clears throat> themselves. Um, see, this is why serious Christians worked hard for the abolition of the slave trade. Serious Christians, groups like the Clapham sect, they understood to treat a human as a means to an end is a great evil. It is a evil to the world. It's a blight on the world. And it's an evil to those individuals because they're not just means, they're an end. <clears throat> so anytime that I take someone else's labor and I, and I, without their consent, force it, I'm breaking this commandment. Does that make sense? Now, you might think to yourself, wait, 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 hold on. Isn't there slavery like in the Bible a lot? I mean, there's this idea of um, if, it's, if it's not promoted, it at least seems to be like governed as opposed to kind of <clears throat> wiped out. Well, here's an important thing to understand. The vast majority, virtually every example of what we think of as what's called slavery in this, it's not the equivalent to 19th century American slave trade. It's very, very different. It's most likely, almost in every case, indentured servitude. In fact, the text we're going to read today that talks about the idea of if you steal something from someone, in fact, one place it says if you steal something from someone and you have to give restitution and you don't have money, you have to sell yourself until you've paid it off. So that's the kind of slavery that's in mind. So we have to be careful. We're using the same word, but we have very different concepts and meanings of it. And again, I would suggest ultimately what God is doing by in. In, in engaging in this world is he's bringing about, he's planting the seeds of what will, will one day, again, wipe out the concept of slavery in the worst sense of it. But, but listen to Deuteronomy 32, 15. <clears throat> it says, if a slave has taken refuge with you, do not hand them over to their master. So the assumption is you're in a community, a slave from, a, not based on their race, it's just any slave. They've maybe escaped another country and they've come to your country. He says, don't, don't turn them back over. Verse 16 says, let them live among you wherever they like to live in whatever town they choose. Do not oppress them. One author says this, counter to the general pattern of ancient Near Eastern law, slaves were not permanent property to be reclaimed if they had broken loose from their slavery. Once they paid off their debt, this person was allowed to go in these cases. So this is indentured servitude. So again, a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I want us to understand that because oftentimes we get this sort of misrepresented 
uninformed view and accusations about what the Bible is promoting, and we just need to be careful that we're accurate in that. So, so persons, that's the first thing that's stolen. One thing that's interesting in the Bible, the commandments are stated, like as prohibitions, don't do this or do that, but the commandments are also told in stories. And in fact, that's much more common is you get the commandment told in a story. Do you know the first slave story? <laughs> Slavery, selling of a person story? It's the end of the very first book, Genesis. His brothers did it to him. It's Joseph. Joseph, uh, chapter 40, verse 15. Joseph is in prison in Egypt. And in uh, Genesis 40, 15, he says, I was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And then, and then the story depicts the effects. This is what happens. You want to know what happens when someone breaks the law of slavery, <clears throat> loss of home, family, enslavement in Egypt, subject to imprisonment through false accusations from his, his masters. <clears throat> so notice that stealing a person from a person's freedom, it's virtually always for economic purposes. That's, that's the idea here. Turning the stolen person again into this human machine of productivity. In fact, do you remember Joseph's older brother, Judah? Do you remember what he says when they're talking about this plan? Judah says this, what profit is there if we kill him? Profit, that's an economic word. What profit is there if we kill him? Come, let's sell him. So the eighth commandment assumes when it refers to people, it, you're holding them for ransom or you're going to sell them for profit in some way. So every attempt to enslave, restrict freedom, coerce a person's activity for economic reasons, it's a violation of this commandment. Okay, so that's about persons. What about theft of objects? That's the other one. No death penalty for this one. Death penalty for uh, stealing people, imagers of God. But what about this one, you shall not steal? Um, as I mentioned earlier, the verb steal doesn't have an object. You shall not steal what? <laughs> it's just you shall not steal anything in this commandment. So that's why chapter 21, and what's in your bulletin, we'll read this here in just a second on the right-hand page, if you, if, or if you have your Bibles and want to turn to it, if, that's, if that text is too small or anything. We're going to read through this. This is a, a list of illustrations of what life, once they're in a city or if they're out in the desert, wherever they are, what would it look like to imply this law of you shall not steal? So we'll look at the first example of that. And these are all things of theft and restitution when theft happens. So let's read this here. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 22, 1 through 15. Whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. Now, as we're, let me just make this come. As we're reading, there's interesting wisdom here. Okay? It feels weird because it's about stuff that like, I don't even, I don't even, I have never even seen an ox probably in real life. Or like, like, I don't deal with this kind of stuff, most of us. But look at the principles behind them. If a thief is caught breaking in at night and has struck a fatal blow, home, uh, home invasion, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. However, if it happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. 
Anyone who steals must certainly make restitution. Here's what I mentioned earlier. But if they have nothing, they have no ability to make restitution, they must be sold to pay for their theft until it's paid off. If the stolen animal is found alive in their possession, whether ox or donkey or sheep, they must pay back double. If anyone grazes their livestock in a field or vineyard and lets them stray and they graze in someone else's field, the offender must make restitution from the best of their own field or vineyard. If a fire breaks out, so you're warming yourself, you've created a little fire, but it spreads, you didn't do it in a safe way, you're negligent, and it spreads into thorn bushes so that it burns stalks of grain or standing grain or the whole field, the one who started the fire must make restitution. Here's, here's a new category. If anyone gives a neighbor silver or gold for safekeeping and they are stolen from the neighbor's house, the thief, if caught, must pay back double. Okay, here's a clause, though. But if the thief is not found, the owner of the house must appear before judges. Right? Because like, oh, someone's stolen, huh? Yeah, I've heard that story before, right? Oh, someone came in your house and stole, really, where are they? They must determine, this is the judge, must determine whether the owner of the house has laid hands on the other person's property. In all cases of illegal possession of an ox, donkey, sheep, garment, that's clothing, any other lost property about which someone says, hey, that's mine. Both parties are to bring their case before the judges. The one whom the judges declare guilty must pay back double to the other. If anyone gives a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any other animal. Now think about what these animals are in this culture. This is, this is like loaning your tractor, okay? This is loaning your lawnmower. Someone comes over to your garage and, hey, mind if I borrow your weed blower or leaf blower, whatever it might be. If anyone gives a donkey, ox, sheep, or any other animal to their neighbor for safekeeping, and it dies or is injured or is taken away while no one's looking, the issue between them will be settled by the taking of an oath before the Lord that the neighbor did not lay hands on the other person's property. The owner is to accept this, and no restitution is required. But if the animal was stolen from the neighbor, restitution must be made to the owner. If it was torn to pieces by a wild animal, the neighbor shall bring the remains of the as evidence and shall not be required to pay for the torn animal. If anyone borrows an animal from their neighbor and it is injured or dies while the owner is not present, I let you borrow my mower and I'm, I'm using it and it breaks. I don't know, like, did you, were you using it incorrectly? You know, did you put gas in there? Did, you know, whatever. You have to make restitution. But if the owner is with the animal, the borrower has to pay nothing. This is the idea of like, oh, hey, would you like to borrow my mower? And I know it's like going to snap as soon as you push on things and it snaps. And I'm like, oh, you broke it. You got to buy me a new one. So it's protecting all the people involved. That, that it's the idea that people are going to misuse. People are going to try to exploit, whether it's the borrower or the one or the other party. If the animal was hired, the money paid for the hire covers the loss. Okay. Even this isn't exhaustive, is it? But this is a list of examples. You, you see the Israelites trying to work out how do we employ this idea of people's property being like sacred for them and being careful of it 
And yet we also have to live in a culture where it's like, I'm gonna have to let you borrow stuff and I'm gonna, you're gonna, I'm, I'm gonna ask you to borrow some things. Can you help me? And <clears throat> so what does that look like? Another note, kind of something to remind ourselves here is the Bible did not drop down out of heaven. What I mean by that is these commands, especially not talking about the 10 commandments, but the book of the law here, do you see how this is contextualized? It's contextualized for an agrarian culture. That's why this keeps growing. You get to Deuteronomy and they're, they're adding to it. Why? Well, because now they're not out living in tents. They're in an urban city living in homes. And so the application of the eternal principle, do not steal, looks different when you're in a house than when you're in a tent. It looks different when you're in close proximity than when you're out in a rural area. So this is, this is contextualized covenant that Israel is entering into. <clears throat> okay, so a couple observations. Number one, I think you have these kind of on a list here on your left-hand side. So the object of theft when it's not a person, it's either money or goods, and it's either uh, a work animal meaning like, again, something that you're going to use like a tractor. It's a food animal that you're going to use for milk or for meat, or it's a clothing animal that you're going to use for leather and those sorts of things. All of these things, they're the means of production. That makes sense? They're the, it's, this is your labor. Okay, this is where we're getting to. The eighth commandment here, it's a way of protecting a person's labor or the means of livelihood. So the idea is that your labor cannot be forced. It cannot be demanded. No one can demand your labor. No one can take your tools or your abilities or whatever without your consent and use them. Your labor is up to you. Now, again, this is important. Let me, let me give an example, and I'm not trying to bring up a, a fire example, but um, there was just in Denver, if you remember a couple, this is in just the past couple years, there was a baker who someone came into his shop and demanded that he do make a certain cake that celebrated a certain lifestyle that the baker, because of his religious beliefs, wasn't in favor of. And it was not really a religious issue. It comes back to this very thing here that, that we have. In fact, America has laws like freedom of association. I can associate with, with whatever groups I want to. But that stems from this right here. Do you see that? That stems from this idea that my labor can't be forced. If, um, think about this. Imagine if you are a, um, you're a political uh, speech writer. You write speeches for your, your own political party, whichever one that is. <clears throat> Can someone come to you and say, um, I want you to write a speech for the other party and you need to talk about the beauties of the other party. Do you have the right to say no to that? Of course you do. <laughs> no one can make you use your talents and your gifts to do something. That's the whole point of this eighth commandment. Your labor is your own. It cannot be, you cannot be forced to use your labor for anything. So again, regardless of what you think about certain political moral issues, this is one of those foundational principles that regardless of what we all need to say yes, we need to be absolutely in favor of supporting. I can't force your labor. You can't force mine. It's by consent and agreement that I give you my labor and that you give me yours. 
Um, let me do this. Jump to the very bottom, because otherwise I'm afraid I won't get to it. I've got too much material here tonight. <laughs> let, me, um, let me give you the, because I think this is kind of helpful. As I mentioned, Israel is, is working out what, is it, what does it mean to employ the Eighth Commandment in their particular life. And as technology changes, we have to have new conversations, don't we? Um, so there's also what, what we would call non-material things. And at the bottom of your page, let me give you four non-material things that people possess that this Eighth Commandment relates to. Number one is reputation. Do you realize that you can steal a person's reputation? We have legal words for that. What are they? Slander, right? Um, libel. How about gossip? That's not a legal word. <laughs> Bible talks a lot about that. How many of you are in environments where gossip has affected someone's reputation? Maybe your own. And differently than property, once your, once your good name has been ruined, it can almost never be restored, or at least to the full. There can't be restitution fully. So reputation is one. Number two, another thing that someone can steal is dignity. How does that happen? Humiliation. Ever been publicly humiliated? Um, this does damage to one of the most priceless things that we have, and that's our dignity as human beings. Number three, another immaterial thing that can be stolen is trust. It's interesting, the Hebrew word for, for, for tricking someone, it literally means stealing knowledge. It's this idea. Um, I'm a realtor, and I'm selling you this home, and there's problems with the home, but I withhold that knowledge from you because I want to close the deal. You know what I mean? Oh, it's a great house. No, no, there wasn't a mass shooting in this house. No, there's nothing wrong with the foundation. <laughs> you know, that's with And again, we have laws against that for this, because again, it's rooted in this. Um, or even someone who, um, who might deceive by giving insincere uh, proclamation of love because they want sexual favors, they want material favors, they want political advancement. That would fall under the same idea of stealing trust with someone. Uh, and the fourth one is intellectual property. Um, I remember when, remember like when music first started streaming and, um, and I was like, this is awesome. I could just, I don't have to go buy like a, you know, CDs were like $24, which was like a lot of money. And so I remember I, I was like, this is sweet. I could just stream music. What was the, what was the, the app with the little cat? Napster. Wasn't that the one that had like, it, it was, and I remember like using that for a while and I didn't, I never even thought anything about it. And I remember someone saying like, you know, you're stealing. And I was like, what? I am not stealing. <laughs> you know, I'm indignant. Um, and I truly didn't. And I didn't want to believe that I was because I'm like, but I really like to do it. I don't want to spend money. But, you know, downloading movies, right, without permission, downloading software without permission, um, stealing people's words. What do, we, what do we call that? Plagiarism, right? You'll, you'll get kicked out of school <laughs> if, you do, if you do that. Why? Because it's rooted here in the Eighth Commandment that it belongs to a person. And to take it is an evil thing that's done. Um, let me read this. This was a comment that I, 
that I came across this week. The person was talking about um, stealing. He said, stealing of life, stealing a person, stealing a spouse, seventh commandment we talked about it, stealing material property, stealing intellectual property, stealing reputation, dignity, trust. <clears throat> he said, there's hardly any aspect of human life that is not harmed, sometimes ir uh, irreparably so, by stealing. And he finished by saying this, this is interesting. I hadn't thought about it. He said, it's fair to say that if everyone observed only one of the 10 commandments, observing the commandment, do not steal, would all by itself make a beautiful world. <laughs> Isn't that true? If no one stole your trust, your reputation, your things, your dignity, uh, your intellectual property, and you did the same, can you imagine how much less, what's our word, chaos? how much less chaos there would be in the world. It's like, yeah, good point. <laughs> so number two, the first one, the object uh, of, of, of these things that are stolen, we looked at what those, that's the means of production. Number two, the, it's, uh, it talks about the general loss of property. And this is verses five through six here. Um, this is this idea that the, the loss of means of production, again, the animals, because remember, those are your means of production if you live in this world, um, could be uh, it could be intentionally, it could be theft, it could be by accident. Remember the guy who just lets his animal graze and then like he turns around and he's not really paying attention and it goes and grazes in someone else's field. It could be just like negligent. Oh, I, was just, I wasn't paying attention to my sheep and he ate up you know, half, you know, half your vineyard, a sort of thing. <clears throat> Whatever it may be, the eighth commandment leads to the idea of, again, even that there needs to be restoration, um, fair dealings, or, or, or just uh, maintenance of justice, we could say. Number three, verses seven through 13. Uh, this is an interesting one, I think. It's safekeeping and borrowing the goods of another. And this is really interesting, because if you think about it, we have to have a concept of trust, right? Like if you live in a neighborhood, any of you have a neighbor that you would trust enough that if he said, hey, can I go into your garage? You're not home. Can I go into your garage and get whatever, a tool? How many of you have a neighbor that you would trust them enough to do that? I wonder. Okay. A lot of us. How many of you would say, no way. There's no way I would trust a neighbor. Yeah. Yeah. But, but think about the difference of living when you trust the people, the community you're in with the borrowing and the sharing and the giving of things. So these, these cases deal with that idea of kind of a social virtue. Um, loaning, say, an animal to help cultivate. Or you go on a trip. You know, your, your lawnmower has, has to be fed in this world. <laughs> I'm gonna go on a trip. What am I gonna do with my sheep who, you know, I'll ask my neighbor to watch them and protect them. Well, if something happens, and these laws deal with like when it's real sketchy, like what happened? Like it's not clear. Um, was it stolen by someone genuinely? Like someone broke into their garage and stole it while they weren't home? Um, or did the neighbor fake the story so that they could just keep it? Was it just bad luck? Man, it just it just conked out. It would have conked out on me. It conked out on you. It's really not your fault. So th th there are no laws about this. If you had no laws about this, think about the kind of climate of mistrust you would have. 
in your community. And so that's, that's what these are for. So the breaking down of this social fabric. And so they do things like, okay, when you don't know, get counsel, get wisdom. You go see someone who can help decide a third party. If you still can't decide what he says is, okay, you have the person who is sort of on the defense of saying, I promise you didn't do it. Have them take an oath before God. Which commandment is that? Third commandment, right? Don't misuse God's name. Make, take an oath. You know, the old phrase, as God is my witness. <laughs> Do that because, again, a good Israelite knows God is a God of justice. If I've stolen it and then I say, hey, God, strike me dead if I'm wrong. That's pretty serious. So it's even employing, hey, a community which is centered around God. If you fear God authentically, this is going to be a safeguard in your life. Number four. The community is reminded that its access to property, I think this is an important one, is not by any right at all, but by God's gift and by God's providence. It's interesting, these, all these animals that are mentioned, the, the goat and the sheep and all that sort of thing, um, in Exodus 22, verse 30, we read that they were to, these things that they owned, their possessions, right, that no one can take, but they're to also take the firstborn of all of those, and give it to God. They're to take the first fruits of their grain that they have out in the field that's sacred that no one can take, and they're to give it to God. Why is that? Because that giving back, what does it do psychologically to the owner? It reminds them that their access to the land, the stuff, the things they possess, whatever it might be, it belongs first to God. It's his. So it changes greedy ownership into generous stewardship. You know the difference between a steward and an owner? A steward is someone who recognizes I'm managing this. I have it. I own it. My name's on it. But I'm just the manager. There is a real owner. God is that real owner. And so this idea of giving back this offering was a way of safeguarding my heart from becoming greedy. And I'll tell you, I remember there was a time, I I grew up very early in life. One thing that I I appreciate about my parents is they always taught me the idea of, Brent, you need to, whatever income you have, uh, you need to give the first of that back to God. And so when I was a little kid, I'd come to church with my offering and it was 75 cents or a dollar, 20, whatever. And they wanted me to learn that pattern, that habit of, and it wasn't because God needs my stuff, it was because I needed to give, because what they knew is, Brent, greed, it's really powerful. And the desire for stuff, it's really powerful. And what's funny is I, I was really good at that my whole life, never struggled with it. I got to a time in my life where uh, financially and economically we were struggling, probably more than we ever had. And I remember thinking, I was like, oh, this is, you know, I'm giving X number, you know, $100 here. X. And I remember thinking like, man, I... Just one, one month, I'll, I'll, I'll pay toward this debt that I have. J- just this one month, I'll do that. Well, guess what I did the second month? I'll just do one more month, because boy, that really helped kind of pay it down. And I found myself, I had gone an entire year, and I, and I hadn't given anything. And do you know how much harder it was for me to start giving again? It was really hard. Why? 
because my heart had grown a certain shape. I, I had become accustomed to, it, it's mine. I started, I didn't say that, I felt that. But it's mine. It's mine. And I had never felt anything like that before. And I remember it was this wake-up call of, again, God doesn't need me to give because he needs it. I need to give because I need it. Because it breaks something that I'm very prone to. And I, because I love stuff. I do. I love, love stuff. It's wonderful, right? God likes stuff. He made it. That's okay. But sometimes I love stuff too much. And, and giving breaks that love, that deep love in my life. And that's the role that it plays here. And so the protection of property in the eighth commandment, it's there. But what it leads to is the regular relinquishing of it back to God. (laughs) He's saying it's yours, but be careful because it might start to own you. So I want you to regularly relinquish it back to me. And And then I'm reminded of God's providence. God's in charge. He will provide. Number five, last one, maybe the most important one. The positive side of the commandment to take responsibility, listen to this, for tending to our neighbors, even our enemies' property. This is a precursor to the Good Samaritan laws. You guys, um, I got to be honest with you, in, in studying this text this week, This is something that I was unaware of how prominent this aspect is to the eighth commandment. In my mind, yes, don't take stuff. Okay, that's pretty simple. This should be like a two minute sermon, right? (laughs) What's so fascinating is the opposite side of don't take. Look Look at the positive side of this. Exodus 23, four through five, it says this. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off. Now think about that. Think about how how you would feel. Think about someone you really dislike. Okay, really. And you came across something of theirs that is just sort of wandering off. What's your first thought? Like, oh, (laughs) sucker, right? Like, oh, you're the, you know, you deserve that guy. He says, if that happens, be sure to return it. Crumb. If you see a donkey of someone who hates you, you, you know, I know some people who hate me, to be honest with you. I, I do. Um, if you see someone's donkey, uh, the donkey of someone who hates you, that's fallen down under its load, so it's carrying something, the owner's not with it. He says, don't leave it there. You actually have to go and help the stupid thing up so that it doesn't die. You have to protect your enemy's stuff. Oof, that's, I don't like that much. I don't like this as much as I like the, I'm, I'm okay with like, I'm, I, I, I'm not going to rob anyone. But this piece, this is going a little too far. See, th- these two cases have to do with the way that I respond to the property, not just of my neighbor who's the nice guy who lives across the street or someone in my life, but also of my enemy. It has to do with finding an animal of someone who hates me and helping them out. Securing that person's property. So the Eighth Commandment doesn't just say don't steal. It says the people who you dislike, you need to work for the care 
of their property, of the things that they own, whatever it might be. Listen, listen to this passage right here. Um, with the fir- this is what one uh, commentator writes. With the first of these statutes, however, directing that one should return the straying ox or donkey of an enemy to its owner, the, the, the trajectory of the commandment against stealing moves now into matters that not only have to do with protecting restitution and relinquishment of property, but also set forth a more positive need to take responsibility for tending to that property, even if it is the property of one with whom I am at enmity. If you remember Pastor Bob on week six, Don't Want Murder, talked about enmity. The divine instruction about loving one's enemy begins not in the New Testament, but in the moral dynamic opened up by the Eighth Commandment. Here, in effect, is a precursor contemporary Good Samaritan law the legal accountability for attending to and not ignoring the needs of my neighbor. Um, anyone here watch uh, Seinfeld? It's, just, it's, great. it's such a good show. It's so good. If you haven't watched it, you are missing out on life, okay? Go watch Seinfeld. If you watch it, does anyone remember the last episode of, how many seasons? Nine seasons? Nine seasons? You remember the last episode? You remember what happened? How did they get in jail, though? Yeah, they go on a trip, they go to Massachusetts, right? And, okay, it's these four Jewish people. Think about this. They go to Massachusetts, and they're walking down the street, and the carjacking is happening over here. And they stop, and it's George and Jerry and Elaine and Kramer. Kramer pulls out his video camera, and he starts recording the carjacking. And the other three start, like, joking about it. It's this guy, he's, like, overweight. They start making kind of comments about his, like, oh, he's doing him a favor. He's going to have to walk now. <laughs> and they're just watching this guy get carjacked. And the guy keeps looking at them like, like, aren't you going to help, you know? And so he... Car drives away, policeman walks across the street, and he's like, hey guys, uh, you're under arrest. I'm like, what are you talking about? We didn't do anything, you remember this? And he's like, yeah, the Good Samaritan Law. You just stood there and watched as this person got their car jacked, stole his wallet, and you did nothing. And these four Jewish people are going, why, why, why would I have a responsibility to do anything? And of course, that's, there's a bit of an irony there, right? These are Jewish people. (laughs) This is their scripture that, as we think about listen to Deuteronomy 22, 1 through 4. This is another location. You shall not watch your neighbor's ox or sheep straying away and ignore them. You shall take it back to the owner. If the owner does not reside near you, or you do not know who the owner is, you shall bring it into your house. Listen to this. It shall remain with you until the owner claims it. You know what you have to do to an animal when you take it into your house? It actually costs you, doesn't it? Then you shall return it if they come and clean it. You shall do the same with the neighbor's donkey. You shall do the same with the neighbor's garment. You shall do the same with anything else that your neighbor loses and you find it. You may not withhold your help. You shall not see your neighbor's donkey or ox fallen on the road and ignore it. You shall help to lift it up. Luke chapter 10, Jesus told a story. Do you remember this one? He goes, there's a guy and he's traveling from Jerusalem, the capital city, down to Jericho. 
And he tells a very common story. This happened all the time. He says, as he's going, he gets jumped. Someone robs him, steals his stuff. Do you remember this story? And he's like laying, as it were, almost dead on the ground. And he says, and a priest comes by. Okay. Does a priest know this right here? Yeah. And the priest is like, ooh, ugh, and walks around him, right? Then a Levite comes by, sees him, walks around. And he says, and then a what? A Samaritan comes by. Samaritans were the sworn enemy. Uh, theologically, they were not orthodox. They, they held bad theological views. Um, a Samaritan comes by, and what does he do? Puts the man on his donkey, takes him to an inn, pays for the inn, and says, oh, if he incurs any other costs, uh, when I come back, I'll pay for all of those. Who is the one who is being faithful to the Torah? It's not the priest. It's not the Levite. It's the heretic. (laughs) The heretic is being faithful to Torah when he does this. What's fascinating to me is how often scripture, when when it's talking to us about living in community, even with people who you're at enmity with, people who hate you, hate your guts, Jesus says, I want you to pursue caring for them. Seek their good, even their stuff. If you see something going wrong with them that you can help, help. And of course, Jesus said crazy things like that, right? He said, pray for those who persecute you. That's nuts, right? No, that's Torah. That's the way of Jesus. That's the way of life. Because listen to the kind of God that we have. Genesis 1.29. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth. Every tree which is fruit bearing yielding, I give it to you as food. Acts 17. Paul says, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives all people Life and breath. He gives, he gives it all. James writes, but if any one of you lacks wisdom, ask God, because he gives to all generously without reproach. The psalmist writes, 37.4, delight yourself in Yahweh God, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Jesus said in Matthew 7.13, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to you when you ask? In Romans, Paul writes, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us, how will he not also give freely give you all things? How about John 3.16? What are those words? Maybe the most famous passage, right? For God so loved the world that he, he gave. So here's my question. When we are caretakers of our neighbor's stuff, when we're generous with our neighbor's things, what are we doing? We're imaging God. I'm imaging God. Remember, all the commandments, God is inviting me into a life of imaging him. I do this, I do this, now you do it. Image me. It's a great gift. Giving. Or I think of the words that Jesus said. He said, the thief comes only to steal 
and kill and destroy, right? When I, when I defy what's here in the eighth commandment, who am I imaging? <laughs> I'm, I'm imaging the thief. But Jesus reminds us and ends by saying, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And so here's my question. Here's kind of what I want us to challenge us with this week. If I, if I embrace this eighth word, and I don't just not rob banks, but I say, I'm going to image God by being one who protects other people's things. I ca- I'm a caretaker. I'm a caretaker of other people and even their, their stuff, their, whatever it might be. What would that look like in your life this week? If, if, if you fully lived out the eighth word, because the reality is we serve a God. Every time we do this, we do this every single week. We take communion, the body of Christ represented in this bread, the blood of Christ shed represented in this cup. What are we representing? What are we reminding ourselves of? A God who has given, right? Look how generous he has been. He has withheld nothing, even his own son from us. And then he says, now image me this week. <laughs> so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. During this song, a couple stations around the, around the room uh, allergen-free in the back. Go to one of the stations, take the bread, take the cup, and during this time, ask God to kind of like, God, what are some things that you might want to show me this week about this eighth word? What would that look like?